Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning with our hearts full of the things that we have been singing and reading of Christ, his glory, the good news of the gospel, his, shed, his blood shed for us. And we understand that our lives are yours. Make it so. Use our time now as we look at your precious word to conform us to its truths, increase our love and devotion to Jesus Christ. Help us to respond by living in lives of, of holiness. And we ask this because we're needy and dependent upon you for all things. And so we look to you for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Grace Irwin wrote a biography of John Newton. You know John Newton, the, the former slave ship captain, author of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And regarding John's conversion, she writes, the dying agony, the awful vicarious suffering were there before him. More, the one on the cross seemed to charge him with his death. And suddenly he knew that the charge was true. It was his, John Newton's sin, which had necessitated the death of God. He made no more resolves, put no more confidence in his own efforts, but cast himself completely on his Lord for mercy and for strength. For the first time, still seeing the man on the cross, he felt the stirring of love. This love was called into being by love which had been already given which had been poured out on him when he had no quality to merit, no grace to want it. In fact, it was not of himself, but part of the strange work which is even now being wrought by God in him. That's amazing grace, isn't it? It's the reality of every, every true believer, everyone who claims Christ as king. Because every believer reaches a, a place where they know they can do nothing to earn God's favor. They get to the place where they understand that, that all that is left for them is to cry out to God for mercy. And then when they receive mercy, when they're assured of that mercy, their joy is overwhelming, isn't it? And so the blessed, like John Newton, they live their lives full of grace and mercy in a loving and faithful response to this gospel of grace. Because we understand that we, more than any other people, have had God's grace and mercy poured out on us. And so we are constrained, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, we're constrained, we're compelled, required, forced to live the rest of our lives extending that same grace and mercy to others. And if we don't, then what we're doing is we are denying the gospel. Which is why as we turn to our text, Jesus explains that the blessed, that is true believers, don't judge people. So if you'd like to turn with me to Matthew 7, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And that's going to be our first point today. The blessed don't judge people. We'll have three points, that's the first. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 1, Judge not 
that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Judge not that you be not judged. This is what is considered a divine passive. So a divine passage, pa passive is essentially a way of speaking or writing where the assumed subject is God, but his name isn't mentioned. And so we read this verse, and although the text doesn't say that God is a judge, we believe and understand that it means judge not that God not judge you. God is the judge of all of mankind. We see this in Hebrews 12.23 and various other texts throughout Scripture where it's explained that to judge is, is the privilege reserved for the king. That word rendered judge in our English Bible is translated in a, a variety of different ways and can mean to sunder, to select, to judge, to assess, to go to law, to seek justice, to expound, to believe, to resolve. And so all that to say is that this word has various meanings uh, depending on context. So here in our text, it seems Jesus is using the term somewhat legally. You know, do not judge, that is, in the sense that the blessed are not to render a moral verdict upon another. The blessed aren't to place themselves as judges over anybody. Now, why would Jesus command the blessed not to judge? Well, remember, this text is part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And that entire passage has the king and his kingdom as its focus. And it's explaining life for kingdom citizens, those who acknowledge that Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. The kingdom citizen, we understand, is a, is a child of God. They call God Father. The kingdom citizen is one who has received forgiveness. The kingdom citizen is one who has embraced the gospel, has embraced Christ. And essential to the gospel is the understanding that there is only one judge who sits on the judgment seat. The blessed are those who have come to some kind of understanding that they're filthy sinners and that they're guilty before this judge and in need of his grace and mercy. And so this truth requires that the blessed do not judge. And they're not to judge because they're not the judge. They're not the judge. Judgment is reserved solely for the one who is perfect. He alone is in the place to render a guilty verdict on another. He alone is worthy to hand down a decision. Romans 2.1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So the blessed is the type of person who understands this. They get this. There's only one judge of mankind. If we judge in this way, then we've usurped God's authority and have positioned ourselves as king. And so when we judge another, we're inviting God's judgment upon our own heads or taking upon ourselves a privilege that is reserved for perfection and we're far from perfect. We are all sinners in need of God's grace and mercy. Therefore, do not judge, and in so doing, you'll refrain from inviting judgment upon yourself. For with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure that you measure, it will be measured to you. So the judgments you pronounce on others and then the measures you use will be the same standards, the same verdicts pronounced on you. 
the word measure here is the Greek word metron. It means rule or anything by which another is measured. It's the source of our word meter. So if you decide to act as judge over another, then the same standards or the same rules are going to be used to condemn, condemn you. It's not going to be grace. That's the essence of Romans 2.3, where Paul writes, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? And then verse 5 gives the answer, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, obviously, that Romans passage is talking about the unbeliever. But that's exactly why Jesus commands the blessed not to do this. The believer has tasted of forgiveness. The believer has tasted of grace and God's mercy. And so for the blessed, it makes no sense to condemn others. It's not fitting. It's not becoming. It doesn't match with, it doesn't go along with being a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's pagan. It's something unbelievers do because they haven't received grace and mercy. Now, we're talking here about rendering guilty verdicts and, and condemnation in that sense. These, these are the judgments that we're told to refrain from. But we're not to refrain from making what we might describe as judgment calls or assessments. So in John 7, 24, Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's what Jesus told the Pharisees, if you remember, when they uh, got upset after he healed a man on the Sabbath. He didn't tell them not to judge, but to judge with the right judgment. And this wasn't judgment as far as rendering a verdict or, or condemning, but making a judgment call about Christ. Jesus told them to make their judgments, you know, in that, in that sense of the word assessments, uh, not by mere appearances, but to make right assessments. We're told later on in Matthew 7 to make assessments about false prophets. We're essentially told to judge them, to assess them by their fruits, right? We'll know them by their fruits. We're to look, look at their fruits and then make a judgment, an assessment. Now, this also doesn't mean that we're to refrain from confronting another's sin. In Matthew 18, we're told to go to our brother if he sins against us. We're to confront our brothers and sisters when they sin. But even in this, we're not rendering a guilty verdict. We're not rendering a judgment. We're, we're confronting them with God's judgments, not our own, with his word, not our own. When a person is, is in sin, their problem is, is with God, not with me. I'm not their judge. I didn't, write, I didn't write the scriptures. And so the gospel is to be their guide, to be our guide. The judgments associated with the gospel are intended to bring life. So when we go to our brother or sister described, as described in Matthew 18, it's not with the purpose to condemn, but actually with the purpose to rescue. That's the context of you know, the passage even before uh, Matthew 18, 15, and following. We're going to give them life. When we go to another, we're going to them with God's word and as a messenger of God. But we don't personally judge or condemn anyone that's not our job. Now, I say this in part because it used to be said that John 3.16 was the most famous verse in our country. But now some people are saying Matthew 7 verse 1 is the most famous verse in our country. So people are using this, this verse 
to show how Christians aren't to tell anybody what to do, which they take to mean Christians should not declare what is and what is not sin. That's what is forbidden. The problem with that view is that it, that it prevents the proclamation of God's word. It prevents sharing the gospel. Because the true gospel, the gospel proclamation requires um, declaring what God thinks about people apart from Christ. It entails that. And so we must speak the truth about God, about Christ, about his word and, and man's plight. And when we do this, we're still not the judge. When we do this, we're simply one sinner in need of God's grace, speaking truth, bringing the good news to another sinner in need of God's grace. Because apart from God's grace, we are fundamentally no different than, uh, than the serial killer. We're simply messengers. And we're not ever called to be judges in that sense. We're ambassadors of Christ. Ambassadors of reconciliation, which requires that we confront sin, but we're not confronting sin with our own opinions or our own agendas or our own standards. We're confronting people with God's word alone, for his glory alone, for the good of other people alone. Now, along with usurping God's role as the judge, what Jesus is also forbidding here that I think is, is baked into this is censoriousness, you know, the attitude of the sinner judge, or what we might call having a critical spirit. A critical spirit is, is characterized by placing self as a supreme judge over what is and is not righteous. So the judgmental spirit judges so as to inflate self and put others down. It's the spirit that, that is constantly looking for fault in other people. It's the spirit that says, you know, can you believe what, what so-and-so did? The critical spirit is not delivering God's message, but their own message. And they're delivering that message from a lofty position rather than that of a fellow sinner in need of God's grace. And I think when we ponder this, that's the subtlety. That's the difference. Those with a critical spirit generally lack love and are suspicious of others because they believe everyone else is as critical as they are. So I believe this could be some of what Christ is getting at when he says, with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. It seems that those who are censorious are even harder on themselves because at least in those moments, they themselves are not saturated with forgiveness. Their hearts aren't saturated themselves with grace. That's not what their mind is, if they even know forgiveness. And so those with the critical spirit tend to impose their own standards and they're not deeply concerned about those that they condemn or that person standing before God. What they're really concerned about is their own self-righteousness, making sure that that is, is what everybody knows about. And so having a judgmental or a critical spirit is indicative of an unhealthy spiritual state. And it's an unhealthy spiritual state because the gospel, at least in those moments, has taken a backstage to the letter of the law. Uh, it's taken a backstage to the rules. Oftentimes, what the censorious person says is true. But their hearts are not centered on the gospel. They're not saturated with grace. Uh, they're more concerned about being right than they are about seeing true repentance in the person that they're talking to or thinking of. And so the censorious person is then a self-righteous person. They see themselves as following the rules that they have kind of conjured up in their mind of what righteousness is. 
And then they see other people as not having measured up to that level and breaking those rules. And so how do we know if, if we're acting as God's messengers or if we've transgressed this, transgressed this command? How do we know that? Well, it has to do with, it has to do with the heart. It has to do with the gospel. Those who are censorious have forgotten the gospel and they focused on the law. They've forgotten that, that Christ died on the cross in the place of sinners, among whom they are the foremost. They've forgotten about God's grace and God's mercy. And so because of that, those who are censorious or have a critical spirit often lack sensitivity. They're impatient with the failing of others. They have a difficult time loving other people. They may have a difficult time admitting that they're wrong. They're typically not very teachable because they know it all and don't see their own failures. They're blinded to their own failures. Patience isn't one of their virtues because they believe that everyone should be perfect. And so they're inconsiderate. They lack common courtesy. They're inflexible. It's their way or the highway. And they refuse to consider the possibility that they might be wrong. They're not very quick to forgive, but they expect others to forgive them quickly. They're not magnanimous or generous in their thoughts towards other people. Nobody measures up to their standards, and so they're often thankless. They lack genuine kindness. They struggle with authority and are generally disrespectful. Most likely, we all see ourselves, if we're being honest, in, in part of that list. But hopefully, uh, we don't see ourselves as checking the box in every one of those descriptions. If we do, if we're seeing ourselves as genuinely characterized as having a critical spirit, then we're in a spiritually unhealthy state. And we are probably feeling, you know, experiencing a lot of condemnation ourselves because a critical Spirit, a critical heart, is typically, like I've said, not themselves saturated with the gospel, meaning that it's not in their mind. It's not something that they're dwelling on. It's not something that they're believing that they're at that moment or, or wanting or treasuring. If it were, then that heart would know well, Romans 2.4, which, which says that it's the kindness of the Lord that is meant to lead us to repentance. And so it's declaring that God has been so patient and gracious gracious and kind with us, how can we not be patient and gracious and kind with others? And so the blessed is a certain kind of person, and it's a certain kind of person that knows that there is only one judge, and it's not them. Uh, they're to be concerned with his standards, not their own. And they're blessed or moved to action by a sincere love for people. And so it's in this way that they love their God with all their heart and their soul and their mind, and then can love their neighbor as themselves. And so our first point, the blessed are focused on the gospel, and so because of that, they do not judge. Second, the blessed are focused on the gospel, and so proceed with caution when counseling. We could say admonishing or advising. Verse 3 says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, 
and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Other people's issues are never as big as our own issue. See, the tendency of sinners is to notice another's problem first uh, while ignoring their own. And we're extremely gifted people in seeing others need and where they need to grow, but being blind to our own shortcomings. The speck talked about here is literally a piece of shaft. It's barely anything. The log here is, is a house beam or a plank, quite large. So Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. If you have a house beam in your own eye, then how can you help your brother get the tiniest piece of shaft out of his eye? There's two assumptions here. The first is that the blessed want to help their brother or their sister. Second is that they can't help when they've got this log in their own eye. I think we see uh, what's going on here as we read earlier in 2 Samuel 12. David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. Then he's lied about it and then murdered her husband. David's sinfulness in that episode dwarfs uh, even the worst of our politicians, doesn't it? Yet when Nathan told David the story about a rich man stealing a poor man's lamb, David was indignant and told Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the land fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. David couldn't see his own sin. And before we condemn David, we need to understand that this is the tendency, this is the leanings of all of us. Our tendency is to fail to notice our own sin, but to easily notice uh, the sin in other people. And this is serious. Jesus says in verse 5, you hypocrite. I think to be called a hypocrite in Jesus' day is no less a chastisement than to be called a hypocrite in our day and age. Uh, I think it's one of the, one of the, the worst chastisements left in, in our society that everybody agrees with. You don't want to be called a hypocrite. This word only appears twice in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And both times it's translated as godless. So Job 34.30, for example, says, A godless man, a hypocrite, should not reign. So it's godless to say one thing and then to do another. That's being a hypocrite. A hypocrite is, is a play actor, not the real deal. He's godless. And so it seems the blessed... Those who come to an understanding of the gospel are eager to be teachers of the law. But as James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so believers, those who have tasted of the goodness of the gospel, and sometimes particularly new believers, are zealous for the Lord. But often in their zeal, they become puffed up in their new status and they lose sight of their own faults. It's good to want to help others grow in Christ. It's good to want to disciple other people, but we've got to proceed with caution. The blessed, therefore, are to take a personal inventory before counseling or admonishing or advising any other brother or sister. We're to examine ourselves first. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. It says you who are spiritual. Right? That's those who are walking and living 
in step with the Spirit. And so exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit that is talked about earlier in that passage in Galatians 5.22 and following. And so we're to remove the speck, if we're to, we are to remove the speck from a brother's eye, but we're only to do that after examining ourselves, lest we too be tempted, right? lest we too become ensnared with that same sin. And then when we do seek to come alongside our brother, we're to come alongside them in humility as a fellow sinner struggling with a similar temptation or similar temptations. We come alongside them with fear and trembling, right? knowing and fully aware of our own weaknesses and shortcomings. We don't come alongside them as the judge, but as one who is saturated with the grace of God. I think we see this illustrated in Peter's life. You know, Peter was emphatic that he would not deny the Lord. He told Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. This is after Jesus said, you're all going to deny me. Those other, those other jokers, they might deny you, Lord, but not me because I'm the best disciple. So it seems that he considered himself above that particular temptation. But then we know the very next day, a servant girl said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Denies him. And we know he does that three times. And so the Lord humbles us for our own good. And this, this humbling is to remind us of our extreme dependence upon the Holy Spirit to do anything. Then after receiving the Holy Spirit, it seems Peter did live a gospel-centered life, not a perfect life, but a grace-filled, grace-empowered life. And we see this in Peter's letter to the brethren and, and, and how his letters are saturated with humility, saturated with the grace of God to the point that he tells the churches to, in 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I don't know about you, but my own, my own experience is, is, is such that when I'm broken and sensitive to my own spiritual neediness, when I've been humbled by circumstances or, or other, that I'm much more gracious and patient and merciful towards other people. But when I'm feeling quite spiritually successful and self-sustaining, and I, I think, you know, I, I've got it together, then I tend to have a critical spirit when I'm looking at other people. When we remove the log from our, from our own eye, what we're doing is soul work. Now, it's not explicitly stated here what removing the log from our own eye entails, but I think it's safe to say that it involves taking an inventory of our inner man, what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in our thoughts and our beliefs and our desires and our goals at a minimum, and then repenting of any known sin. That's what soul work is. It's looking at our own hearts. And I believe Jesus assumes that the blessed, that his true followers know this. Because after all, a defining characteristic of the blessed is living a life of repentance. It's, it's praying regularly David's prayer of Psalm 139.23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Isn't that interesting? That was David's concern. That was David's response to the omniscience and the glory of, of God. Was, was his own heart? It wasn't. Search me, O oh God, 
And, and in your omniscience, point out to me everyone else's faults around me. Help me to see if there's any grievous way in that brother, in that sister. And lead me in the way everlasting. I mean, I mean it's all, David's all concerned about his own soul, not, not anybody else's. That's soul work. And when we practice soul work, we see our own gross sins. And we're reminded of our own need for a Savior. We're, we're reminded of the gospel. And what this does is it kind of tenderizes. It tenderizes our hearts. And when our hearts have been sufficiently tenderized, then our souls are in the right state to be of some good to our brother. But if we don't do this soul work, if we fail to do this soul work before we seek to help a brother or sister in sin, then we risk wounding that brother and we risk being a hypocrite, an ungodly person of the flesh. And so we ought to be hesitant to disciple, to mentor, to counsel, to advise, to teach, to admonish, to rebuke anyone. Our default setting ought to be caution. It ought to be caution, careful, measured. If we find that we're eager, then we might need to go back to our prayer closet, do a little more soul work until we have been sufficiently humbled. I think the plight of one seminarian illustrates this well. Uh, most seminarians are in their 20s, typically sharp, uh, no more scripture and, and doctrine uh, than most people will ever know in a lifetime. Years ago, I counseled a brilliant young man getting his PhD, not anybody from Kenwood. He could read Greek and Hebrew fluently. There was no doctrine or finer point of theology that he could not debate or articulate well. But our paths crossed because he was fired from his job for surfing the internet for pornography during working hours. Yet when I talked with this man, he was frustrated with his church because his church wasn't allowing him to go back to his regular teaching duties that he had as quickly as he liked. Right? So he knew the contents of scripture well, but he didn't know his own heart. He needed to do some soul work. Knowing facts about scripture is not the same as internalizing the word. We should live, we should live it before we give it. We should be characterized as living the word before we give it. If we truly want to help people grow in grace, if that's where our hearts are, and that's the heart of the blessed, and that's the assumption here, Christ is helping, he's helping uh, the blessed, those who embrace him, he's helping them understand how they're to handle the gospel truth, how they're to understand the word now that their eyes can see. And so he's helping them. So if we truly want to help people grow in grace, then we're going to want to speak the gospel into people's lives, and to do that requires a humble heart. So a lot of damage is done to relationships within local bodies, local churches, when we're too quick to give advice and to admonish. And in really, those who are super, super eager to offer counsel and advice and so forth are typically not the sort of people that others are seeking out for counsel. Most often, people seek counsel from those who are living the gospel and those who ooze grace. And those folks are typically the most reluctant to offer any kind of advice or counsel. And so second point, 
The blessed are focused on the gospel and so proceed with caution when counseling. Then third and last point is the blessed are focused on the gospel and so withhold the sacred from the satanic. Verse 6 says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn it to attack you. So here we have a warning and a reason for the warning. The warning is, don't give what is precious to those who don't recognize its preciousness. The reason is, if they don't recognize its preciousness, they'll turn on you. This is a difficult text to understand, and there's all kinds of interpretations out there. One interpretation I read suggested that what you consider holy and precious, for example, your own advice and your own opinions, are really not that great and really aren't going to be appreciated. So keep them to yourselves. Now, I think that that's probably true, and that's probably good advice, but I don't think that we have any textual indicators pointing to the fact that what is holy and precious is our own opinions. So what is this text saying? Well, I'm going to pitch what I think it's saying. If you disagree with me, it's not going to hurt my feelings. Um, the Lord will sooner or later help you see your, your errant ways. <laughs> I'm not your judge. So here's what I think is, you know, for the most part, you know, dogs are, are spoken of negatively throughout Scripture. I think all the time they're spoken of negatively throughout Scripture. And so the most part, they're, they're represented as evildoers. So you have, for example, Philippians 3.2 says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. All three of those are talking about the same, um, the same person. Revelation 22.15 says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexual immorality and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Again, dogs are listed in, in all of that. Pigs or swine aren't in any better company. Demons are cast into pigs and were considered unclean for the faithful Jew. And so, in general, dogs and swine are both despised. And then the holy things are those things that are sacred. And pearls are everywhere in Scripture uh, considered valuable and precious. 1 Timothy 2.9, pearls are the adornment of costly attire. Later on in Matthew, in chapter 13, 45, Jesus talks about the pearl of great price, and it's likened to the preciousness of the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been talking about the glories of the kingdom. In fact, the glories of the kingdom are so precious that the focus and goals of the blessed are going to now center on the king and his kingdom. Their treasures are no longer going to be silver or gold, but those things pertaining to Christ and his kingdom, eternal things, their relationship with Jesus Christ and so forth. And if we you know, went back and read, I think, chapter 6, we would see that highlighted. And so because of their glorious position, the blessed, true believers, might be tempted to judge another, right? Because they have been given eyes to see and ears to hear. They might be tempted to judge another, but Christ warns against this. And the blessed are also going to want to help their brother and, and share what they know about the kingdom. But they're advised to do this with caution, keeping an eye on the glorious gospel of grace. Then we come to this verse. In my opinion, it seems that Christ is warning the blessed here that not everyone is going to see the kingdom for the beauty and treasure that it is. 
which, would really be, which is really kind of shocking when you think about it, that the good news um, and, and all of the framework that supports that uh, could be heinous to some people. Jesus and John the Baptist came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later, Christ's disciples are sent out to preach the gospel of the kingdom, uh, which I believe is the same message, repent. And if a town rejects that message, they're to shake the dust off their feet and move on. I think Christ's instruction in our text is a precursor to that later instruction. The responsibility of the blessed is to share the gospel to all people, to proclaim the gospel message. Right? That's our responsibility. But we're not responsible for the response. We're not to try to be the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. We're to proclaim the message. So kingdom truths are precious, but they're only precious to those who embrace the king. They're only precious to those who see Jesus as a long-awaited Messiah who will save his people from their sins. And so if a person proves himself or herself to be an evildoer by rejecting the gospel of the kingdom, then don't go any further with them. You know, camp out at the gospel. Stick with that call to repentance. Because anything else is going to be a waste of time and it's only going to provoke their rage in general. Now, an interesting text in relation to this is Exodus 22:30, which commentators will, will talk about at times, which says, you shall be consecrated to me, the Lord is talking, therefore you should not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field, you shall throw it to the dogs. And so there the Israelites were instructed not to use meat torn by wild beasts for sacrifices. It's unclean, unfit for any holy purpose. This is to be thrown to the dogs. And so the language there is similar to verse 6 of our text, and so that's where people make the connection. Now, if Jesus is referencing this teaching in Exodus, uh, then maybe it's that he's saying that, that holy and precious things are for righteous purposes, not to be thrown to the dogs. So defiled meat is thrown to the dogs, but not precious truths. Therefore, be wise in sharing precious truths. If a person rejects the gospel, and remember that the gospel is in and of itself, the gospel message is a judgment. It's God's judgment to the unrepentant. It's life uh, to those who are, who are being saved, but it's a judgment to those who are rejecting. So if a person rejects the gospel and so proves to be a dog or a pig that is an evildoer or someone who opposes the king in his kingdom, then you're not required to go further with them. So we're to be wise and discerning. The glories of the kingdom are not going to be glorious to them, which again, as I said, is a shock to the blessed. In fact, um, the glories of the kingdom won't be glorious to them, and they'll despise those truths and you, the messenger. And we see this played out in Paul's life. When Paul was in Antioch, for example, the people initially begged him to teach the gospel of the kingdom on the next Sabbath. The next Sabbath, it says almost... The whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what, what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. We saw it over and over with Paul. And Paul didn't stay and reason with them and plead with them after this, but he left them and he took his message to the Gentiles. Proverbs 9, 7 says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, 
and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. So if a person rejects the call to repentance, they're not going to see these other kingdom truths as precious. Maybe that has some kind of bearing on our day and age and some of the debates that, that we get ourselves into. Maybe we need to reconsider getting into moral disputes about you know, whatever is the latest rant from the left. Maybe our efforts would be better spent on proclaiming the gospel and then calling people to repentance. Because if people reject that gospel message, then they're going to naturally reject the morality that the gospel requires. And as we see, they do turn and they do become vicious. And they do waste precious time and resources. Now, kind of to summarize this, I see all three teachings from Jesus here as saturated with the gospel of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount teaches that the blessed are a certain kind of person. They're those who, when we look at the Beatitudes, they're those who see themselves as spiritually bankrupt, and so they're desperately in need of a Savior. They're those who mourn their condition and so long for newness of life. They're those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They are those who see themselves clearly and so are called pure in heart. They are those who are merciful because they've tasted of mercy. And, and so love mercy. The blessed are those who have been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ and have received forgiveness. They realize that they are those who have been forgiven so much and so they love much. Therefore, to usurp the function of the holy judge is quite unfitting for that kind of person. The blessed, the true believer, has no desire to condemn when they themselves have received forgiveness, when they have enjoyed grace. Their desire instead is for mercy and compassion and kindness because they've received that mercy and compassion and kindness. They respond to sin and rebellion and hardness of heart with genuine and sincere sadness, not self-righteousness and, and, and judgmental indignation. Yet because they hunger and thirst after righteousness, they, they still move forward with a heavy and grievous heart calling sin, sin. That kind of person longs to see his brother or sister walking in the spirit. But because of soul work, they're fully aware of their own propensity to walk in the flesh. And so they're extremely cautious when seeking to bear another's burden. When another brother or sister is caught in sin, they're grieved. And regretfully, they know they must act. But before they move, they look at themselves. They take inventory of their own soul, lest they too be tempted and fall. Because they know that this is a real possibility. They know the blackness of their own heart. And so they proceed with fear and trembling, with trepidation, restoring with a spirit of gentleness. So they proceed with mercy and kindness because they've been shown mercy and kindness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And naturally, this type of person so longs for their unsaved neighbors and friends to know God that they, they have to share the gospel with them. They, they can't keep silent. They want to share the good news. They don't want to keep it under a bushel. They want to proclaim it. They love the king and his ways. 
They love and see as precious the truth that God's perfect plan was from the beginning one man and one woman for life. They love and see as precious the truth that men and women have different roles in the family and in the church. But they realize that not everyone is going to, without the gospel and without grace, is going to see those truths as precious. And so they share the gospel prayerfully and expectantly, exercising discernment regarding these other precious truths as they wait for the Holy Spirit to do work in lives. That's the heart of the blessed. Righteous, but not self-righteous. His brother's keeper, but not domineering. Bold with the gospel, but not foolish. And again, understanding that they can't be the Holy Spirit in anybody's life. And so in this passage, we have judgment and salvation measured out by God, but not measured out by the blessed. The blessed haven't been given that responsibility. They're concerned for their fellow man, but they're not responsible to save or judge. If we do judge, it's simply in the capacity of communicating God's judgment, not our own. We're messengers only. As James 2.13 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And it was this amazing grace that humbled that former slave ship captain, John Newton. And as Grace Irwin continues and writes, the sight of the man on the cross drew him. God was no longer a righteous judge who on receipt of satisfaction remitted the punishment due the lawbreaker. He was the giver in his own being of that satisfaction, giving the unthinkable cost of himself, granting not absolution, but absorption, so that the sinner might not remain a pardon penitent only, but be a sharer in the divine joy and conquest. And that's us. You know, for those who are in Christ, we've all received the same amazing grace, and so may our relationships then ooze this grace and mercy and kindness and all to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We're thankful that he is the beginning of the church, the firstborn of the resurrected dead, this new group of humanity that we are part of through faith in him and his work on the cross, his shedding of blood on our behalf. this group of humans who will be immortal. And Lord, we look forward to spending an eternity fellowshipping with Christ. Lord, help us to be a people who never forget that we are so blessed because of this work of grace that you did. That was nothing that we have done. And so, Lord, help us to handle the precious truths of the gospel with humility and kindness and mercy and wisdom and discernment that you might be glorified and that Christ might be exalted in us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.